Hello and welcome to the Sussex Founders Podcast. I'm James and in this series we meet founders building software businesses across Brighton and Sussex. We'll talk about how they're building their companies, their product and their team. This week we're talking to Jana Basto, who's founder and CEO of Prodpad.com. Prodpad is a SaaS tool that gives product managers everything they need to build an amazing product. Joining me in talking to Jana is Simon Kimber, who's co-founder of Create.net and Sussex Founders. So without further ado, let's get on with the interview. So uh, hello and uh, thanks to Jana Basto from Prodpad for joining us today. Uh, I'm here with Simon and I'm James. And um, Prodpad is a, a fantastic business based down here in Brighton that's been going for quite a long time now. And it's a tool uh, for product managers to better organize their workflows and get the most out of their, their products, as I understand it. So um, welcome, uh, Jana, and thanks so much for taking the time out to speak with us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thanks. Well, I thought I, I, I thought it'd be really cool to start out with a bit of a, the history of Prodpad because I think a lot of people listening will probably be in those early stages of getting to an idea in their head and how they're going to execute it. And it's it's really it'd be really fascinating because I believe before you started Prodpad, you were product manager, so you'd felt this pain uh, yourself. So it'd be great to talk through some of that early, very right at the beginning kind of the frustration that led you to begin kind of putting together what would become Prodpad. Yeah, absolutely. So back to the beginning, myself and my co-founder, Simon Cast, we were both product managers uh, working for two different companies in London. Both companies were startups. We were leading product there and uh, we needed tools to do our own jobs and nothing really existed at the time. Uh, we needed something to help us uh, create our roadmaps and share where it is that we were going uh, with the team and to our bosses and to our customers. We needed something to keep on top of our backlog and help us understand uh, you know, what people were asking for and where their requests had ended up and all that sort of uh, stuff. Uh, and there's just really nothing out there. We were using spreadsheets and PowerPoints and developing tools and everyone else's tools and there's just nothing there for product people. And so I'd had this idea for quite some time, ever since I'd been uh, started as a product manager a couple of years before, of tools for product people. Um, and I've been sketching it out. I've been trying to make some prototypes out of Excel, uh, but I couldn't get that far because I didn't really have the ability to do much in the way of back-end coding. I wasn't a programmer. Um, I knew just enough front-end to, um, to dabble in stuff, but not really enough back-end to actually make anything. So when I met my co-founder and started sharing my ideas with him, um, at first I went with him, went to him with some, uh, with the idea of getting some feedback on this thing that I've been building, because he was a fellow product person. Uh, but he pointed out that what I built actually had some value, and he pointed out that it wasn't actually that difficult to build from a backend point of view, and he pointed out that he could build backend code, which I thought was quite useful. Uh, and so we agreed to work together on building the first version of it to see how far we could get. Uh, and so he built the back end, I built the front end. Now, this was in the days of jQuery and Bootstrap. Uh, building apps was a lot easier. The barrier to entry was a lot easier in some ways. Um, and in some ways today, it's a lot easier building apps. Uh, but back then, you could kind of get away with something. And because there were no other tools out there, um, we put something out there. And uh, at first, it was just a tool that we used for our internal use only. Um, 
we didn't give it a name even. It didn't have a website, it didn't have a web presence, there's nowhere you could find this thing. So this was just in your in your roles, just, in your employee employed by other companies yeah, to build this, just it, to use yourselves. Exactly. Um, the only way you could actually access this this thing was if you worked with us. Um, him within his company, me within my company. And every time somebody new joined the company, it was quite funny, if somebody new joined the company, we had to add you to the da database and like manually send out the invite email. Um, and as we, um, uh, as, as uh, it matured, um, people started joining. We started making it a little bit more, um, uh, 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 a little bit smoother as we went forwards. Uh, and people on the team started joining and I stopped telling them that I built this thing and we stopped making it look and we started making it look less and less like we built this thing because I wanted to get people's honest opinion right the early people like they knew that I built this thing and of course it looks terrible because I built it on the weekend but after a year or so um, you know people are like what is this thing and you know I can't find it online and what's it called and how do I find it um, and after a while people started saying this thing's really cool this is I really like this we should do this in our app um, and so um, started realizing that what we built was actually probably worth getting out there. Um, and at the same time, myself and my co-founder were also building um, uh, uh, the beginnings of what was going to become uh, Mind the Product, the community of product managers. Uh, and so we had a community of product people around us. We had a lot of product people uh, in our network that we could share this with and started uh, dabbling, started testing the market around us. Uh, we set up a, gave it a name, we called it Prodpad, set up prodpad.com, started sending a bit of traffic there just to see if anybody was interested in this concept of product roadmap software, product idea management software. Uh, and funny enough, people started turning up and people started trying to click the buy now button. Um, and of course, if you tried to buy now, there was no way to actually buy it. We didn't have a payment system. There still was no invite system. There still was no onboarding system. There was no way to actually buy or use this thing if you didn't have our help. But it actually did prove that there was some sort of interest from the market there. Uh, so um, after um, doing some more tests, some more um, sense checking, uh, we had a tool that we knew solved a problem within our own company, was compelling enough for people to come to us and ask how they could use it, um, was interesting enough for our you know, friendly network of product people around us to express interest in it. It was interesting enough for strangers on the internet to try to buy it from us, even though there was no way to do so. So I got up the guts in mid-2012 to quit my job and to go focus on it full-time. And I remember joking with my co-founder at the time that, uh, that he'd follow suit soon. But, you know, we were both going through companies that, you know, were raising funding and were, were, were going through some really interesting times. Uh, and his company was going through um, a healthier spurt, growth spurt at that time. Uh, and so he didn't want to leave just yet. Um, and I remember it was six weeks later that he handed in his notice to come join me. <laughs> so can um, I just pick up on that there? So yeah. you were earning a wage. Yeah. Would, had you sold Prodpad to anyone yet? So yeah. it was zero income. Zero income. So yeah. that's quite a big set. Often when people are, are building a product, they'll they'll onboard a few customers, even if there's the manual setup first, they'll get some paying customers through the door first, yeah. and then quit the job. Yes. Um, I think, you know, previous people we've had on the podcast, like like Tom from Buzzshot, you know, I think that was very much his story. He, he got to a tipping point where he could stop doing the freelance work yeah. and, and concentrate totally on the product. You, you made quite the bold sort of leap it, to, it, it to was... just... 
It was bold, but Go it was also it. calculated. Um, I quit my day job as a product manager, uh, but I didn't quit um, all income stuff. Right. Um, what I actually figured out was that I had enough savings from having worked my day job, and I remember working out my savings, and I was like, okay, if I kept spending exactly as I have, I have nine months. Now that's assuming I'm spending exactly as I, as I am, right? I could probably pare that back a little bit and live a little bit longer, but I also don't wanna live like that because I'm not a risk-taking person. So what I actually did was um, I managed to get a role doing um, product management consulting stuff. So all of a sudden I could work freelance hours doing um, slightly higher paid work, um, fewer hours, um, which does come with a catch because I learned at that point in time that you then have to chase invoices and it's more stressful and it's harder work um, and it wasn't fun. Yeah. Uh, but you know what, I did that for a couple of years and that helped pay the bills until I got off the ground. Uh, but um, that's that was basically my jumping off point. So I quit my day job, exchanged yeah. it for freelancing and consulting. But because I was then doing that, it, it then exposed me to a bunch of other companies. So I started doing consulting and training and mentoring all around the product management space, which then actually taught me how other companies were doing product management, which was almost like this virtuous uh, cycle that taught me how to build ProdPad. Because one of the mistakes I made with ProdPad early on I didn't realize this, was that I was building it just for myself and Simon. It was just two product managers' opinions, which doesn't really, uh, didn't really work, because we realized that um, as soon as we got it out there for other people, in reality, various things just fell flat on their face. Um, as we started putting it out there to other people, each client that I went to realized that actually, this is how it's done in the real world. This is how it's done. This is how it's done. And so ProdPad became more well-rounded, uh, more based on best practices, more based on real-world practices. Um, and so ProdPad improved as a product while I was still able to pay rent, which was the important thing. It's fascinating because you're all, it's, uh, you've got so many things kind of going alongside there that are the textbook right things to do. So you've got your events that you're kind of building up to get your community and embed yourself in there. You've got the uh, you know the freelancing element where you're effectively doing I guess uh, a lot of like user research because you're talking to the people who are going to be using your product every day um, on the freelance basis, and then you're also kind of building the the startup uh, with a lot of data behind you, like for example putting your button uh, the, the buy button on the site with that with no actual transaction ability <laughs> behind it, but you're like measuring that and that's all giving you data that is steering you in the right direction. So it's a really fascinating. Um, Approach and your the mind the product group that came before ProdPad. Uh, it came only just before. Right. So I actually know Simon, my co-founder, because of that. Right. Um, or sort of. Um, so I met Simon at an event called Twestival. Uh, does anybody remember Twestival? Yeah, yeah. I've, I've got, it rings a bell definitely. It was, yeah. It was a charity event uh, for um, uh, for Twitter people. It was a festival. For Twitter people, back when Twitter was cool, mm -hmm. right? Um, <laughs> I expect, <laughs> if it was ever cool. It's a pre-Trump He's not here, but I expect I expect John I expect John would have yeah. gone to something like that. He was like the first the first Brit on Twitter, wasn't he? That's his, yeah. That's John's claim to that's, fame. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and so something I, I remember um, being at that uh, Twestival thing, and somebody um, introducing me to Simon and being like, "Well, you're a product manager, and you're a product manager. You two should meet." And me going. I've never met another product manager in the wild. I should do this more often. And at that point in time, product, product there are managers. other product managers. Wow, we should do this more often. And it was at that point in time that I said to Simon, I heard of these things called Product Camp. 
that they run in America. And I've been thinking about running one here in London because I don't have one. Do you want to help me run it? And so that's when he agreed to get involved with that. And we started working on that. So he became my buddy working on Product Camp, which then uh, allowed us to meet Martin Erickson, who's working on Product Tank, which then uh, we started working on Mind the Product together. And so while that was all spinning off, Simon was my friend, who was my uh, person who I would go to for product advice. So I went to him with the early idea of ProdPad, and that's how I became the ProdPad co-founder. So that all kind of came out of the same thing, right. which was, you know what, meet a product manager, talk to them about a product, and you never know, you might end up spinning up events and running a software business with them. Exactly, and you've <laughs> just like really immersed yourself in that whole community and meeting so many other, other like-minded ones that I guess you're able to get their feedback on the product as well while you're, while you're doing it. It's fantastic. And, yeah. uh, and nudge, nudge the nudge ProdPad under their noses and say, hey, you should... Uh, you should use this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's almost less of that. It's more about being able to learn from them. Um, every opportunity I get to talk to a product person, it's more about understanding what kind of problems they're running into and um, uh, you know what I can learn from them. Um, and then uh, I think uh, them finding out about ProdPad comes almost uh, more naturally out of that. Hmm. Fantastic. Um, it would be great to so go, go back to that period, kind of when up post the idea, and uh, I guess maybe around the time you quit to mm -hmm. go on full time, and look a bit about when was the first time you got some revenue in, and how did that feel? Because that's <laughs> often a big moment when you you've 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 actually got someone to pay for the product. Yeah. So um, that came in fits and starts. Um, so. Uh, I remember uh, after uh, we uh, quit our jobs, it was in the summer of 2012, um, uh, we both picked up um, consulting and bits and pieces on the side to help pay for um, other things um, to help us cover for it, but we also knew that we didn't want to go raise external funding, we didn't want to have a huge long runway until we found money from ProdPad, and one of the things that we've done in the past was we had uh, both worked for companies that had raised money from external VCs and had hired all the people and created not a lot of value in the world. Just had a lot of people. And a new boss, I guess, in the investment company that was... Investor bosses. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, we didn't want that. So I said explicitly to Simon that I didn't want to run a startup. I wanted to run a business. And what I meant by that was that I wanted to run something that was based on customer revenue. And so I wanted to focus on building something of value that people would pay for us, that would pay, people would pay for from day one. Uh, and that was our goal. Um, and in order to do so, um, we'd had the benefit of having a tool that we'd, we'd tried out for a couple of years. So we weren't starting from nothing, but we didn't have a payment system. We didn't have any way of starting it up. There was no marketing behind it. There's nothing really to get going from. So the first six months after we quit was just focused on getting to the point that we could actually sell something. Um, and I remember uh, one of the mistakes we made was uh, we chose a really, really cheap vendor for the billing system. Um, we chose it because it was the cheapest. We didn't want to spend a lot of money because we weren't making any money. Um, and I remember having to build it and then um, having to rip that one out. And I remember in that period that we'd actually built it, one person actually paid for ProdPad. Okay. Um, and it wasn't actually a customer. It was a competitor who wanted to see it um, because we, we the, the tool didn't allow us or didn't easily allow us to have a trial period that didn't allow you to have a credit card in first. So the first person who paid for it was actually 
a competitor who's no longer a competitor, is now a friend, um, but long story, um, <laughs> we now laugh about it. Um, but uh, at the point that we had to pull out that one and trade it for another API, um, and we, we upgraded to um, a, be a much better system that we've been using since. Um, uh, I remember triggering something to all of the customers, which was literally the one person um, that said, your ProgPad account has now been canceled. <laughs> and he emailed going, did I do something wrong? <laughs> no, we're sorry. <laughs> um, but that was back in the days of, you know, what we were coding from our bedrooms. We had no idea what we were putting together here or, you know, what was going to happen if we poked on this or poked on that and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, and uh, I think that was uh, just as we started realizing, okay, what it was going to take to build something that uh, was going to have to support, you know, the thousands of customers that we were going to need to support to make a uh, viable business. Mm -hmm. um, and so we learned our lesson not to cheap out on suppliers and not to cheap out on the work that you put in to make something stable and um, that sort of thing. Um, and so we um, uh, built in with a better um, building uh, system. Um, did some changes to the product and there's some pretty vast changes because it ended up changing the way that our roadmap worked um, which was a, uh, a really big change for us because we used to do a really old school way of doing product road mapping and we changed to a lean format of road mapping um, and it was at that point in time that it really caught the attention of customers um, we launched that uh, with a little bit of an updated look and feel um, some new stuff on the website uh, in February 2013, so early 2013, about six months after we'd left our jobs and taken a big jump on this, mm -hmm. uh, and we had our first paying customer within the month. So okay. it was our actual first official. There wasn't a competitor. It wasn't yeah. a competitor. That wasn't our mums. Wasn't yeah. a friend. It wasn't somebody we knew through the community. It was just somebody who, honest to God, had tried Prodpad, liked what they saw, and put in the credit card. And how, how did how did you? How did you get those those first customers? How did they find you? Uh, through organic means. Um, we uh, used to just blog a lot about what kind of thing, what kind of things people might be th thinking about. Um, in hindsight, you might call it a you know content marketing strategy, um, but really it was just before us. people used the term. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, it was just us answering questions like. What is a product roadmap? What is persona? How do I write product specs that developers actually read? Um, some of these are still our pop most popular blogs. Um, and, uh, and also really good support um, because that first customer um, ended up um, uh, emailing us, emailing into our support at propad.com email line and getting me on the other end and us pretending that we were a lot bigger than we were and it wasn't just me in my pajamas emailing back. Um, and just offering support and answering questions, and because we I don't, I don't think you need to pretend. Actually, I think I found that when I when, yeah. I, when you know, with um, with uh, create for me when it was just me, um, people assume you're you're some big corporation with yeah. with a team of developers and a team of a team of customer service people, and it is you know it was it was just me in my back yeah. room. Building features for them and uh, yeah, it can and it can often be a disservice. Sometimes mm. it's actually helpful for people to just know that it is a human yeah. on the other end and they're there to help you out. Yeah. Um. Uh. So funny enough that uh, that person who became our first customer is actually still a customer of ours, uh, many years later, and she now knows that she was our first customer, but she did not know at the time. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um. And I don't know whether that would have changed things or not, but um, you know, we put on our our. Uh, 
corporate face and made it look a little bit look more professional than you know a couple of people just mm. testing something out to see if it would work or not. Um, and once the one came in, then the next one came in, then the next one came in, and it started growing from there. Um, and there was a lot of learning that that grew from that point onwards. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the, the, the pricing that you, you, this is something a lot of people struggle with is what do you charge to start out with and how do you know like how to price it or how to productize it and split up all the different tiers and how did you approach that at the beginning? Um, this, this is something I wish I'd done differently because I sort of uh, took a guess at it um, and anchored it to something that was actually too cheap. Um, I remember looking at uh, Basecamp as a product, which was project management, and we were doing product management, uh, and we figured, you know, we're doing for product management what they've done for project management, perhaps, you know, we're in the same sort of space. Uh, And so we priced our first product at $25 a month. Mm -hmm. It's about the same, let's just put it at that. And, you know, lo and behold, we got 25 bucks. Excellent. Um, And one thing we did do is that we priced in American dollars, and we Americanized our blog. Because uh, we looked at pricing in pounds and euros and dollars and maybe all three or maybe something else altogether, and realized that everyone understands the dollar and then we wouldn't have to worry about currency conversion and we could deal with that later on. Even to this day, we still don't support um, conversions. We just still uh, charge in dollars mm-hmm. um, and that's been just fine for us. Um, so that part did work, but we did price too low from the get-go. We probably could have started off higher um, or at the very least, spent more time earlier on testing and doing more research around that pricing. Because you can research and do testing on pricing, just like you would do research and testing on any proposition, any features, any usability stuff, anything like that. I think, I think though it's, easy, it's easy to forget how different the SaaS market was 10, 10, 10 or more years ago. Yeah. I think it, it was quite easy to sort of think how at that time you'd look at it and say, yeah, 25 $25 seems about right. That's sort of what other SaaS... There weren't a lot of other yeah. SaaS products out there to compare to. And there um, was nothing in the product management space. Yeah. And that actually did us um, both a disservice as well as a great opportunity for us because we were number one in Google for all things to do with product management tools, product roadmap tools, all that kind of stuff. No competition, but it can no traffic. Um, so whoever was looking for it, we got all the early adopters and that just allowed us to sweep right up. Anybody who was looking for tools, we just found those types of users. And our early users were early adopters. And fortunately, product managers make great early adopter users because they love a little bit of new tech. They love a beta. Um, and at the price point we were charging, they had no problem putting it on their personal credit card. Um, and so that model worked for us for the first couple of years. Um, in hindsight, we probably could have gone bigger, faster, larger um, by pushing on that a, yeah. a little bit more. That's fascinating, and um, it'd be it'd be great to talk a little bit about um, your approach to product roadmaps because I I think this is kind of a bit about how the company got going as well. Because I think there's often a, a, a temptation for people who are trying to decide what to build in their product that they put everything into this time-based, like uh, a priority list based on delivery dates mm. and everyone pretty much universally misses those dates and that was a big part of how that your the, the, the design for the product came around. And that's how I used to do it as well. I mean, mm. as a product manager, I used to run around the company, figure out what everyone wanted and then make a little list of all the things, make a timeline and say, okay, so this is what we're going to do. 
in 2020, or not 2020, this was put in, in 2010, um, and uh, my bosses loved it. I'd get a little pat on the head and they'd say, great, go deliver it. And inevitably I would fail. And I thought it was me failing, uh, and I thought everyone else made roadmaps and would deliver on them, and it was just me who sucked at product management. Um, turns out no one delivers on those things. Everyone is making up those due dates. And to be honest, you're actually doing a really big disservice by sitting at uh, the beginning of the year and guessing what it is that you should be building, what you should be doing, uh, and any modern product manager knows this now, um, <laughs> took us years to learn this, uh, you should be looking at what kind of um, problems the company is facing, what kind of outcomes you're looking for, uh, and figuring out what order you want to tackle those problems in, um, and giving the team the space and permission to go find their own way of tackling it. Uh, it's not about what features and how many story points and all these other little vanity metrics you can measure along the way. It's not about the output, it's about the problems that you're solving. And um, so the roadmap approach that we have built into ProdPad has changed massively mm -hmm. to um, allow for this new way of measuring and this new way of um, uh, tracking product mm -hmm. progress. How's that been received by users then? Are there, are you, presumably there's some, there's, there's some friction there for people that do it the old way. Yeah, um, particularly going back some years. I mean, when we, um, uh, uh, I remember several years, not several years, maybe five, six years ago, um, we made the joke saying that if we had a quarter, um, we're talking about a Canadian quarter, mm -hmm. American quarter, um, for every time that uh, somebody asked for a Gantt chart or a timeline roadmap, we'd be rich already. Um, and we actually have a Slack bot automatic responder that pings a quarter to us every time somebody asks for one. Um, and we've counted up how many times people have asked for one, it's ridiculous. Um, but we don't build one because we know that it's not the right approach. It's actually causing people, setting people up for failure. Um, the first version of ProdPad actually was a timeline roadmap. And it was actually by building that and seeing what happened when we put it out for people, realizing that no one was delivering the roadmap, and everyone kept coming back saying, okay, so I got this far, but I want to take everything on my roadmap and shift it by month. And had we asked our users, like we just said, okay, yeah, we'll just uh, have a multi-select shift tool and allow you to move everything over by month, we could have just built that tool. And our competitors have done stuff like that. They're like, yeah, here's a tool, you know, move your things along, and there you go, here's a pat on the head, keep going. Um, what we did was we asked the five whys. We just kept asking why until we got down to the bottom and realized that the reality is that no one is actually delivering on the roadmap because the further out you plan, the more the the more um, the further out you're going, the more assumptions you're making, the more you're making it up. Um, and ask any group of product managers, they'll all agree with you on that. All assumptions, all delivery uh, estimations are made up, um, and the bigger they are, the more they're made up. Uh, we all know that. Um, and so when you're telling somebody, yeah, this will be out, but this will be out by Q3, it's like you don't even know how big you're going to be by Q3, let alone if you're going to deliver that on time. Like you don't even know what you're doing on Thursday. <laughs> uh, and so we changed the way that we do road mapping and changed it to much more of a, an approach of saying, here's what we're working on now, here's what's coming up next, here's what's coming up later, but focuses on the uh, uh, the uh, uh, the objectives. Right? Are you doing this to gain revenue or to gain user growth? Are you doing this to um, battle churn or tech debt? Um, what are the core reasons you're doing this? And are you tackling this first or this first? 
Um, and that approach has proven to product managers across the world that they can move faster and deliver more. Um, it's the lean approach. It's uh, essentially um, the lean startup um, in practice happening at the more strategic level. Uh, and you see companies like Netflix and Google and Amazon who use this sort of approach um, massively outperforming companies who are much more project and delivery driven. I think that's absolutely true and it's it's interesting to see that a lot of the kind of concepts that you've come applied while building the business you've almost brought into the product to help other people in that way which is really fantastic. Um, it would be great to talk a bit about the team uh, because that's what uh, how, how it's grown and how you've managed hiring and what it's like been like doing that in Sussex and have you found any challenges or strengths from being based here and uh, it'd be great to talk a little bit about that. Yeah of course so when I started Prodpad I was actually living in central London which is not a very conducive space to bootstrap a business from. Uh, I was living in a shoebox um, and I remember this I could basically sit at my desk and on my bed at the same time. I didn't I had a chair but I didn't need a chair um, I didn't really have much space for anything else. And so once I'd quit my job and went to go focus on this um, full time, I realized that I didn't actually need to be living in central London at all. Um, and uh, I, you know, my job used to be five minutes walk away. All of a sudden my job was right there. I didn't have to leave, leave my house. Um, and so I moved down to Brighton, um, hoping to get the best of both worlds. Still enough of you know London city sort of feel, um, but a little bit more space, and I realized in Brighton I could get an entire apartment with sea nearby and doors and windows, which I did not have. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I moved down here um, about five or six years ago, um, and uh, uh, my co-founder stayed in London, and uh, we stayed remote. Um, but when it came to making our first hires, um, I found that hiring people in Brighton was actually really easy. Um, because Brighton has a really, really rich vein of amazing talent, particularly if you're looking for people in uh, support, sales, marketing, front-end, design, um, UX, that whole area. Um, there's just a ton of people here who are eager to get involved, particularly if you're talking about a product-based company. Um, and so our first hire was actually somebody who reached out to me saying, I want to work with you, here's what I'm good at. Um, and so. You know, I said, okay, well, I'm not sure I'm ready to hire yet. Uh, we had a couple conversations back and forth, had a coffee, and then um, realized, actually, yeah, we can do this. So after a couple of months, I ended up making our first hire. Um, we ended up uh, taking on an office at The Works, which is a co-working space here in Brighton. Um, we worked out of a basically a storage closet um, out back of there, uh, kind of in uh, one of their spaces. Um, tiny little room and um, we uh, loved working there because they allowed us to grow with them. So once we outgrew that small space, we uh, were able to break down a wall into the next office and have something that was able to be big enough for uh, 10 of us. And then we broke down a wall into the next space and that was big enough for about 18 of us. Uh, we've only just recently outgrown that space. Um, so we've uh, moved office um, just recently. Yeah, and it's uh, into this really huge kind of space that we're in today. So how big is the team as of today? Uh, so right now we are 26 people. Um, and that's 26 people um, in Brighton. We've got another small office in Stratford-upon-Avon. We've got a few other people who work remotely across um, 
uh, uh, Europe, we've got some people in Slovenia, some in across uh, uh, UK. Uh, one person is actually working from um, Asia for the first half of this year. Um, and uh, we have uh, our newest hires actually based in America. Fantastic. Um, what's the makeup of the team? Uh, in terms of tech, in terms of, in terms um, of skills, in terms of yeah, in terms of departments and, and uh, specialities. Good question. Uh, so I guess that's about five or six, seven maybe if you count um, uh, uh, everyone included on the dev, DevOps, yeah. CTO side of things. Um, we have uh, probably about the same uh, marketing. I mean, because we're a uh, uh, startup, we have sort of hats, everyone wearing different hats that kind of blend together. Um, customer facing, support, success, that sort of thing. We have three or four wearing that sort of hat. Um, uh, sales, um, we have a couple people who sort of wear that hat. Um, yeah, so it's kind of a blended thing. Uh, hmm. But yeah, pretty well rounded team, I think. Great. And in terms of your customers, are they, uh, if you're pricing in dollars, is it, do you find are they a majority of them in the States or are they, very, is it very international customer base? Yeah, or? so at least half of our customers are um, based in the US um, and it's a disproportionate amount of our money that comes from the US. Uh, so definitely a, um, a worthwhile market to, for us to have gone for. Mm-hmm. And in terms of numbers of customers and revenue, do, do you like tend to talk about that publicly? Or? Yeah, I can tell you about our customer numbers. Yeah, um, that'd be great. So we um, just last year we broke the thousand customer mark. Mm-hmm. So we've got a thousand paying customers Amazing. Yeah, around that's, the world. That's a huge uh, kind of milestone. Some of these customers are paying us just like $20 a year, um, mm-hmm. but some of these customers are enterprise customers and they're paying us um, in the hundreds of thousands per year. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, huge so price spread. Do you, is this, what, what's the pricing model then? Is it a per uh, user or? Per company. Per company. Per company, yeah. Right. So we have packages that go up based on um, the size of the company and the complexity of the package. So if you're a, um, you know, let's say a, a, a small to mid-sized company with three product managers, you need to integrate with Slack and Jira, then you probably want to be in our central plan and that's $100 a month. Uh, if you want to um, integrate with, um, you know, something more complex, ADFS and TFS and mm-hmm. Okta and some of these other things and you will have 50 product managers and you might want to be on a performance plan, which is closer to a thousand a month. Right. Um, so it depends, but it scales up based on the, um, the size of the team. And, and it sounds like you've split the features very intelligently so that you can't necessarily have a massive customer using the small plan. That they, they, they buy, like, buy the feature set, they just want to be on that, that top end plan. And that's been based on a lot of trial and error. Um, we test our pricing just like we test our product. Um, as I said, in the early days, I wish I'd done more of this um, because we had early packages that were, we, we tried per seat pricing, we tried uh, just base uh, package pricing, we tried, you know. Um, uh, uh, bolt-ons for your uh, for your integrations and for features. We tried all different types of models um, and it took us a while to come up, come across something that actually worked. Mm-hmm. We also dabbled with changing the names of packages, which made a difference as well. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, play with the packages, play with the numbers, play with um, how you present them, play with your pricing page, because um, all those things can make a big difference with um, 
how your uh, customers uh, perceive your product. Mm -hmm. I think I, I know we've we've seen we've seen sort of similar things ourselves. Just one of the sort of fun things for me was just reversing the order of the packages on our pricing page, right. putting the most expensive package first, anchoring people to that that most expensive price yep. seemed to just make a huge difference to what people subscribe to, even though they didn't necessarily need the sort of numbers that yeah. we had on the higher level packages. It was like, oh, that seems, you, you start with the most expensive one and that one, oh, that seems really cheap. I'll go for that, I'll go for yeah. the middle one. It's, um, it's really interesting, some of the psychological we, we aspects found, of it. We found something very similar. Our pricing page, uh, we just launched uh, maybe a couple months ago um, and it's doing really well. Um, uh, lists the um, it actually goes top, middle, bottom. Um, the, the the main packages on top, uh, the the most expensive packages yeah. on top. Yeah. And, and that, that's apparently a really effective yes, way. Yes, that's we we found that worked really yeah. well as well. Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, onboarding customers into the product, is there is there anything there that you found has really helped affect churn, or that that was that is an area that uh, a lot of people really struggle is how do you onboard a user? Like our previous guest on the podcast, he uh, he did, did a, an in depth video call with every customer before they could start their their trial so it'd be very very high touch very yeah. high touch so it'd be fantastic to hear how you do it yeah i mean onboarding is hugely critical for almost any tool ever um, and the thing is that onboarding like when you're doing a SaaS product you don't you don't think about it in terms of selling once if you're selling a monthly package you're selling to them 12 times a year like they're not necessarily making an active decision to buy 12 times per year, but they are making a purchase decision to not take away their credit card from you. Uh, and so if their usage drops, then uh, they're gonna take away their credit card. You're gonna have zombie users who don't use your product and they're gonna churn. Um, and fixing churn is incredibly difficult if it's based on people not using your product. And if you have churn, it's almost certainly because people aren't using your product. Um, and if somebody's not using your product, you can't fix it once they've stopped using your product. Because if you call them saying, hey, you're not using the product, they're like, oh yeah, good point, and they take away their credit card. That's <laughs> it, they've churned. Um, you fix that problem a year before when they signed up, right? So you fix your churn problem by onboarding them in the first place. So uh, the one thing that I say here is to always be onboarding, right? You're not onboarding them for the first 30 seconds, the first 30 days, you're onboarding them for the first 30 months, right? How do we get them properly onboarded and successful all the way through? Um, and so we have uh, onboarding tactics that um, uh, help address each of those concerns. So what is their um, initial 30 second onboarding thing? What, are, what How do we treat them in that first 30 seconds? What do they expect to see in the first 30 minutes? How do we get them as fast as possible to see value? see those wow moments within ProcPads that they go like, okay, yeah, I can see myself using this, I can see this being valuable. But also, how do we make sure that they're seeing that value uh, 30 days from now or 30 months from now? Um, so a couple of them that have worked really well for us. Uh, uh, one of them is our trial time. Uh, so if you sign up for a trial of most products a day, you get a set trial time, 30 days. Sign up now, no credit card required, free trial, 30 days. And you start your trial, you start using it, and then 30 days later, it turns you off, and you get the choice of putting your credit card in or not. Pretty typical, and that's what we used to have as well. Uh, but we did an analysis, and we realized that we could tell with 85% certainty by day nine who was gonna buy or not. And we're like, well, if we can tell who's gonna buy or not, then why are we giving them an extra 21 days to make up their mind? 
right? What's going on in here? So we actually cut that trial time in half. We brought it down to 14 days, just as a test. And it was a pretty simple test to change the trial time. Um, and what we realized is that that new cohort, cohort who's coming through, um, their conversion rate actually doubled. What was happening is that if you were given 14 days at the beginning, what you did was you used the app more readily, going, I've only got 14 days, so I better hurry up and use this thing, um, which is great. But at that point in time, our number one support request became a request for more time. Because in honesty, in honesty 14 days is not enough time to get onboarded and get the credit card out of your boss's hands and get everyone on board and feel comfortable with it, right? For a lot of people, sometimes you get busy and you just didn't have time for it, right? So not an unreasonable request. And if somebody asks for it, we don't tell them no, we give them extra trial time. So we're like, yeah, sure, extra trial time, come back in a week, here's some extra days. Um, we realized that it wasn't the fact that they, it wasn't the trial time that was making them more successful, it was the fact that they were doing activities, right? It's the people who were doing this, 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 and this that made them successful. And there's key things like if you invited a colleague, if you added an idea, if you had a comment in your account, right, that made you successful. Um, other companies have similar triggers, like in Slack, I think it's 1,500 messages. If 1,500 messages happen in your Slack account, you're likely to be successful and pay for it. Facebook, I think it's 12 friends. If you have 12 friends, you're likely to be successful and stick around forever, sort of customer, right? Um, every company has, or a lot of companies have, sort of that metric. Um, we found some of these for ourselves. And so we figured out ways to incentivize people for that. Um, in Dropbox, um, if you invite a friend, you get more credit, uh, sorry, you get more storage space. Um, but Prodpad doesn't have the concept of storage space. You get unlimited storage, I guess. We don't really charge for that. Um, in Slack, you get credits if you invite people and if you do activities. But we don't have the concept of credits. We did have trial time though. So what we did was we um, set the trial time up so it's variable. So today when you start a trial, um, you get a limited amount of trial time, but as you use the app, the trial actually extends itself automatically. So, welcome to Prodpad. Tell us the name of your product. It's X. As you add the product name, you automatically get free trial time. Invite your colleague. Wonderful. Colleague comes in, you get more trial time. Do something more complex, like um, do a Jira integration. You get more trial time. Add your credit card information, add your billing information, get more trial time. And this is in their first session? Uh, is this is across this is... Their, their trial. Um, so a lot of these happen in their first session, yeah. and that's when they're kind of learning it. Yeah. And they get little check boxes they can fill out, um, little, little, little to-do list to do. Just kind of almost uh, a, a, that that first that yeah. first session to sort yeah. of say, well, oh, I can get okay. I want I want lots of time to to try this out, so I'll yeah. get lots of this stuff done straight away. Yeah, and each time they're doing it, it's telling them what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it, and gives them a little lesson as to you know. Well, you're adding an idea, and here's why you want to add an idea to Prodpad. And you know, you're adding feedback. Here's what customer feedback is, and how it supports the ideas. In you know, now you're adding a product. Here's what products can do, and here's how you add a roadmap once you've done that. Right. So it teaches you how to use the product, but also gives you that trial time that you were looking for. Right. So people are like, oh, I want to collect all my trial time. So you can collect all this trial time. Um, so people aren't asking us for trial time anymore. You just add your own on. Um, but they're also doing all these activities, um, which is great because it means that now people are doing all the activities um, and getting their, their free trial time. Um, the conversion rate uh, absolutely jumped after that one. Um, so that was one activity we did. Um, another one was um, the persona-specific onboarding emails. 
so when you join an app, it's pretty typical that you get an email. Welcome to so-and-so. And then maybe a day later or a week later, you get another one. You know, here's what you can do with this app. A month later, maybe something else, right? Just sort of a generic thing. Um, we used to have that as well, and we realized that you know some of these things were just getting ignored. We'd send the third email, even if the second one wasn't opened, which was a little bit dumb. We decided we could probably do a little bit better than that. So today, when you get a, when you start a trial on Podpad, we don't send an email immediately because chances are you're busy in the app. We don't want you being um, distracted by something happening over to the side. So what we do is we wait and we see what you do, and if you do this, this, and this then we tell you about something else. Right? Tell you about this other thing that you might have forgotten. Um, if you do all the key activities, then we're like, you're awesome. Why not hear about this other cool feature, um, like the Chrome extension that you might not have thought to install. If you come in and you don't do anything, because some people do that, they'll start a trial, and then they just look at it, and then they just close the tab. And it's weird. And we're like, this, what happened? Is everything okay? And we send an email that actually just checks in, going, is everything okay? Like, you started a trial and then you disappeared. Can we help with anything? And we send a check-in email that actually just acknowledges that. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, sorry, I got distracted. And the conversion rate on that is absolutely huge. The number of people who come back from that who otherwise would have been totally lost users. Um, so we give them a more personalized, yet um, this is all based on, you know, programmatic, this is all based on a flow diagram that we set up um, that automatically sends, the, sends them these emails. Um, and based on their activities in the first 30 days, there's this flow diagram that includes any, like, any one of 50 different emails they could get. No one gets all of them, but you get specific emails based on your activities um, over your first 30 days or so. So these are the types of things we think about for the first 30 days. But then when we're thinking about you know your next 30 months, it's like, well, we have um, people like our customer success uh, managers um, and uh, you know just people on our team who are product experts, people who have been product managers for years and years and years, who are on hand to help do um, check-ins and help guide you through any questions you have and help make sure that you're making the most of it, um, making sure that you're using the app. Um, and if we start seeing you dropping off, um, giving you a shout, helping you out, uh, making sure that um, you know everything is okay, mm-hmm. so that we're not just finding out six months later that you're unhappy that your credit card's been charged for six months and you haven't been using it, which is, I think, a big failing of a lot of other companies. Absolutely. I mean, there's some fant- absolute sensational advice, advice in there for people, I think. like That's pretty much best practice that you could imagine of hearing for onboarding people into a product, and it sounds like you've had fantastic success with it. Um, I, in kind of, I guess we're in concluded now because we're kind of getting towards the end of our time. It would be really, f- you're, you're an absolute expert in product and everything about it. You must see everything that every company does when they're getting started. So if you had to kind of give someone who was just starting out now at the beginning of their journey uh, one piece of product advice, what would you choose um, to if you're right at the beginning and just getting started? Yeah, um, it's a really good question. If I could look back at where I was um, years ago, starting as a product manager, I had this assumption that I had to know everything and that I had to you know stand at the front of the room and have all the answers. Uh, and I would say to anybody who's just getting into product or thinking about it that you don't have to have all the answers. That's not your job. Your job as a product person is to ask the best questions. Your job is to surround yourself with the experts 
and to be able to tease out that information and to coordinate uh, people working together to find the best solutions to things. Um, so don't hold yourself up trying to write the best spec and write the, find the best answer and do the best work yourself. It's all about um, working with the other people around you and surrounding yourselves with these things. And if you don't know something, put your hand up and say, like, I don't know this, but how might we as a group figure it out? That, that, I think that's really great advice for people getting started, like just uh, just really absorb information from others and, and, and make a start and get on with it and don't sweat it too much about kind of the strategy part of it, just really try and, um, and get, get going. Um, well, thanks so much, Jana, for taking the time out to speak to us. I think Thank you. there's absolutely incredible information in there for people who are at every stage in their startup journey, because I think you're like one of the success stories that have really kind of like blossomed out into being this really great success story for Brighton. So thanks so much for coming on and uh, taking the time to tell us all about it. Um, and was there any? Did you have any other questions, sir? Well, actually, we've got a pause there, so maybe edit this in. Yeah. Earlier. Um, I was going to say. Um, should have to wait this down. Sorry, we're in editing mode now. <laughs> um, so, um, sort of stepping back a little bit, you. Um, you you quit the day you quit the day job. Yeah. You were doing the freelance work, um, getting those first few customers on board. Um, where was the point at which the freelance work could get thro thrown away and, and this became Prodpad became your your one your one thing? How how long did it take to get to that stage? And and that was an ongoing journey. Um, that took quite quite some years. I think it wasn't until two thousand sixteen before I could pay myself an actual living salary right. from Rockpad, um, which means that I was... Um, that was still just you and your co-founder? Uh, no, no, we had was... we had actual employees right. at that point in time. Uh, I think we were a team of maybe six or seven. So right. at that point in time, I'd been making the... Uh, I remember having that option a few times going, I can either pay myself or I can hire someone and make right. my life easier. And can I, can I afford to live a little bit leaner and do a little bit of work on the side and stretch my hours, but have somebody who's an expert at this. And, I, and based on that, I could hire a tech mm. expert and a marketing expert and a, um, a, a UX expert and you know somebody else to take on different roles that yeah. I couldn't do. So was um, that was that a big milestone for you? Was that, it was that a huge that milestone. Point? Yeah, yeah. And I think it was 2016, early 2017 before uh, I was able to um, mm. actually make that step. Cool. Yeah. One other thing that we didn't actually confirm, but I'm just thinking about it now, you are entirely self-funded. You've never taken any external investment throughout the journey. Yeah, com uh, completely self-funded. Um, we looked at raising money in 2015, because uh, remember at that point in time, it was easy to raise funding. People were just giving it away. Um, and we had investors looking at our numbers. We had uh, at that point in time, like we were in the 10, 15, 20,000 MRR mark. Um, it was the two of us going on three, going on four at that point in time. Um, uh, it was, uh, it looked like free money. And then I realized that I actually didn't want the pressure of uh, the extra investors and the people who were offering the money weren't exactly people that I uh, would have hired. 
mm-hmm. right? Like I yeah. wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to work with in such a close relationship, anyways. Um, the only reason I was looking at working with them is because they were offering me money, mm-hmm. and I realized, like, wait a second. Once I get the money, I now have to report to them forever. Changes the dynamics completely. <laughs> it changes it entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I remember at that point in time having to make a decision going, okay, so what's the catch? Is there any way that we can do what we're trying to do without taking in this money? And it meant buckling down and saying, okay, well, I'm not going to take a salary for another 18 months. Can I do that? Mm-hmm. I think, I think that's one of, the, one of the reasons that, that, we're, that we are founders is... is we want to be. We want to be in charge. We we have a vision, or we, but it's it, it does. For me, it always felt like going back to having a boss, going right. back to the days of having a job, and and uh, and sort of answering to someone else. And I think it's uh, that's that's certainly for me one of the reasons why we always sort of stayed stayed bootstrapped. Yeah, and it wasn't so much the fear of a boss per se, um, because I'd still retain control over the day-to-day business mm. and things like that. Um, there is always the fear of what happens after, because um, the thing is, once you get on the investment um, treadmill, you take one investment, which you know seemed really small, and it didn't wasn't signing off that much, but I was making the bet and I was making the promise that I was gonna go back for more. So I was making the bet in 2015 that I was going to be able to raise money in 2017 or 2018, and that I was gonna be able to raise money again, big money, in 21, 22. Um, And that I was gonna be able to raise even bigger money, and that each of those times I was gonna be doubling, tripling, quadrupling the business time and time again. And I was looking at it going, I don't know how I'm going to 10X my business. I know how I'm going to keep it growing up and to the right, I can do that, but I don't know how I'm going to 10x the business. And you know, you giving me a million dollars isn't going to astound me with this knowledge of how to 10x my business. It's not a matter of throwing money at it and all of a sudden it grows. Um, and I think it would have been an unhealthy bet, um, you know, because at that point in time, I had uh, people who had salaries on this thing. I was taking a healthy business that had money coming in, right? I could have 20,000 MRR, nothing to be, actually it was closer to 30,000 MRR at this point in time, right? $30,000 a month coming in, and I was betting it all on red or black. And I'm like, whoa, hold on, I could just keep that all to myself and you know, not do that. Um, and so I didn't want to make that big bet, um, and I didn't think it was worth it. And in hindsight, I am so glad I did not, because it's not easy to raise right now, and I didn't 10x my business. Um, <laughs> right? Like, it wasn't like a magic swoop upwards, and I don't think that had I taken in that money, it would have magically changed those numbers anyways. Mm-hmm. I can imagine in hindsight, I probably could have blown all that money really easily, like so many young founders do. On um, Facebook ads or... Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. And it's so easy to say, like, oh, I totally know what I would have done. In hindsight, if I had all my knowledge, if you'd given me the money early, I probably could have gotten here faster. Um, but I know that, um, you know, given all the things that I would have had to learn along the way and all that pressure, chances are I probably would have followed the similar path and ended up, um, you know, raising somewhere along the lines from a bad investor or a bad hire because you're hiring so many people or something like that. And it's like, why would I do that? I've got almost 30 people who are an amazing team. Um, It's paying for the salaries and a great place. And, you know, we get to do things like Christmas dinners and off-sites and whatever we want to without having to report to anybody. Um, so, yeah, um, 
running it profitably, lean, uh, no investor um, money in sight. Fantastic. It's, uh, it's almost like a lesson in how to do it. And it's, it's what more and more people are looking to do these days. I think it seems the whole kind of indie hacker and this, uh, th that whole movement towards bootstrapping and, and a focus on profitability is, is absolutely you know, what people are, are looking to do. And certainly a lot of the people that come to the Sussex Founders events are certainly going down that track. Whereas 10 years ago, people were just uh, thinking, oh, I need to get investment to hire a tech co-founder to build my thing. Mm. Whereas yeah. now it's much more your approach of like, let's, let's build a company that's sustainable and profitable and grow it organically because now you're fully in control of it and you have control of your own destiny with it, which is fantastic. It's a really good way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much, Jana, for joining us and for giving us your time. That's been a really fascinating episode. I think we've covered so much here. Um, uh, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really a pleasure. Thank you, Jana. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Thanks very much for listening to the Sussex Founders podcast. And don't forget, you can always join us every second Thursday of the month at Presuming Eds for a coffee morning to meet like-minded founders from across Brighton and Sussex. You can sign up to hear more at sussexfounders.com. Thank you.